whatever's in my heart. Welcome to Dancing on Desks. Welcome, y'all. I'm Monet. And I'm Erin. We're back. Yes, we're back from rest. (sighs) Where do we begin? Well, what have we been up to in this time of rest? Well, I was so grateful to to fly home and visit my folks and see my sister for the first time in two years and family, my brother, my mom, my dad, see Elliot's family and get in the snow. I was so, so grateful to, to be able to do that. How about you? Mm, well, Mar and I, we drove from Michigan to Georgia. I spent time with my family and um, one of my family members was sick. And so there, we had to make arrangements for that. Uh, I got to see one of my very best friends, Shay, and we took a couple long walks and had just great conversation. You know, we we talked about going on rest before we we did it. And now we're back. The, the rest for me... <laughs> made me think about just the rituals for rest that I'm, I don't have in my life and what I need to be doing to ensure, but I'm prioritizing my relationships with people I love. This is including myself, friends and family, and just doing the things that I like to do. If this is what I, my body is saying I need to do or, or what I want to do, being sure that I'm making space for baking, since I like baking, reading a book that I don't have to read for my my graduate study work, taking walks outside even by myself or with Mosley. So I'm just really grateful for this time of rest. And we also have a special announcement to make. We've received a grant from the Abolitionist Teaching Network for $1,000. And we wanna thank our Hivemind member, Nina, for writing our letter of recommendation for us. When we talk about our hive mind, they are not only, you know, folks who are offering us ideas, feedback, and words of accountability. They're also people who are taking action on our behalf so that we're able to bring you this podcast. So we'll have another special announcement in March when we'll share with you Uh, what we're up to and what we think we're going to do, but we would love to hear from you. Share your ideas of what we could do with that money at our email, dancingondesks at gmail.com, on Instagram at dancingondesks, or at our website, dancingondesks.org. So this episode, episode five, which begins our second semester, is all about self-care. And since we've been creating this episode, it's made us think a lot about our own self-care. And it is always a journey. Erin, what has it made you sit in or, or think about? There have been so many times in the conversations that we've been so lucky to have with teachers as we've been making this that you have been in the chat like, Erin, are you hearing this? She's speaking directly to you right now. Like <laughs> she's talking to you. And something that you and I talk about is that part of a self-care practice, I think, is also being accountable to ourselves and being held accountable by our community to to like maintain these practices of care. As we're creating this episode, I'm about to go back to school for the first time in two weeks. Um, when we, we return in person and we've been in person this school year and I started getting sick my second week back at school. And I, I every day I was taking self-tests at home and I was always testing negative until finally a week later, on a Sunday, I tested positive. And, and, you know, of course, what that 
what that did was like, it forced me to stay home. You know, a lot of folks have been, you know, talking about Omicron and, you know, with, with our vaccines that the symptoms are bad, but I ended up getting, getting really, really sick. And so that I wasn't able to return, return to work, even when my quarantine ended. Something that is true for me. And that like really resonated with a lot of the conversations we've had with these teachers too, is that like, I definitely have like a, just that like this, this ethic of hard work and like an ethic of of working no matter what, and um, just like keeping your head down and going. And so, you know, mm-hmm. like I've, I've always like had this pride that like as a kid, I never stayed home from school sick. And like as a teacher, I've never taken a sick day. And so like to suddenly have to take leave, like totally, like it totally threw me. Of course, like being sick was really scary. Um, navigating, like navigating the healthcare system here and trying to get support from a doctor and trying to do that in a different language and in a system that I didn't understand without like very, with, with no guidance felt really scary and isolating. But I think also what I was sitting with was just like this fear of, of seeming lazy or not dedicated enough to my students for, for taking more leave. I try at the end of my quarantine, I tried to return to work. And, and when I did, I got really, really sick when I got to school. Colleagues of mine that I work with who were like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You need to go home. You shouldn't be here. And, and I, you know, I sat in this space of like, I, okay, I, oh, come on. I, I can figure this out. I'll figure it out. Like I can muscle through this. I know how to muscle through this. I've like worked being sick before. And those teachers like, <laughs> like were really, I, all I could say is like, they were tough on me. Like they came in my classroom and were like, I'm going to drive you home. Have you gone to ask for a sub yet throughout that week, you know, and extending my medical leave. These were like teachers who you know, of course, we're like checking in on my well being. But I think what felt like love and care in a way was for them to reach out and say to me, like, what can what can we do here so that you don't return to school yet? And I what I feel so grateful for that is that like, I think that they saw and knew me there. And like, they knew that my struggle was not only like, with my health, but also with wrestling with these really, internalized ideas of what it means to be a good teacher and what good teachers do and that good teachers show up no matter what and that good teachers sacrifice themselves no matter what. Um, I guess like something that I'm sitting with after this is just knowing that like that care is an act of in a way is an act of refusal. And so like having to ask myself, like, what am I not going to do so that I can get well? I just appreciate how how we're talking about self-care because I think sometimes self-care is often wrapped up in capitalism that we have to buy a thing or we have to, to do a thing in order to acquire self-care. And what I hear so loudly in your story is that actually self-care comes through really intentional decision-making and that for some of us, it is a really hard decision to decide to care for ourselves. Audre Lorde wrote that caring for myself is not an act, not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. And that's a, a statement we can't take lightly because it isn't just that, that we are 
participating in this kind of um, frolic where we get to just get all the things we want and all um, that, though that does feel really nice sometimes, um, but that this is actually about survival. I was so surprised, Erin, when you said, I don't know if you saw my face, but I was so surprised when you shared that you'd never taken time off for you know, when you've been sick or you just need a mental health day to get it together. And what is the model that we're giving students for care when we show up and we're clearly sick or we're clearly not doing well, or we're just not having a good day. And instead of just staying home and getting ourselves together, we go in and we soldier through it anyway. So I guess like, I'm kind of curious, Erin, how has that just allowed you to rethink your own self-care like would you stay out again if you don't feel well yeah there was a one of my students parents wrote to me when I wrote to say I would be extending my leave and she's a she's an educator as well and she said to me something like just take all the time you need there's there's always enough time for me. Like that's just some really important unlearning for me to be engaging in. It's just the constant sense of urgency that I feel. You know, that also means that I'm passing that urgency onto onto them, and that they're also internalizing that that stress. And so it's like, what does it mean when, and for me as the teacher in the classroom, like, what does it mean when I'm carrying this stress? What messaging am I sending to them? But it also sounds like your colleagues were a big help in thinking about what Rasan shared in episode three about collectivity and care and accountability and how working in a collective with our colleagues, it, it does a thing to dismantle um, not just carceral curriculum, but our ties to how white supremacy works in schools, it, it means that we are, we are not just working, we are overworking. And what we prioritize is work and not our own bodies, our own spirits, the things that we need. So I just think your story is is such a journey of, of those pieces of self-care. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, I've been sitting and thinking a lot about what I've been learning and unlearning about care. What about for you? What have you been, what have you been thinking about that? Mm. Well, one is, you know, self-care is about rest for me, period. I want the soft life. I want tenderness. Practices that just make me pause, listen to my own quiet. Um, Shout out to Kevin Kwashi's Sovereignty of Quiet, because so much about us has to be on. But I think the other piece of my self-care has been celebration as well. So I got engaged in December. Mara and I are now engaged. I said, yes. And that's just been such a blessing. (laughs) Yes. Enjoying this engagement as we are like in school and doing all the things. And then we've also been trying to get pregnant. And so I'm going to try to carry first. And what that means has been, at least for me, has been just paying closer attention to what I'm putting in my body, going to sleep. I'm such a night owl. I need to be asleep when it's dark outside and awake when it's light outside. And just changing my sleep schedule has actually meant that I felt more rested, refusing to overwork, which means that at a certain time I'm going to bed regardless of what has been done or not done. I've also been more reflective about what projects I say yes to. I love 
the work that I get to do. I love being a doctoral student and getting to think about education, particularly English education and writing, you know, gender identity and sexuality and race. And at the same time, um, that's not all of who I am. And so even in sharing the news with you all, I think that's also a part of my self-care because I'm a very private person. And so sometimes I don't tell everybody my good news, but I love to celebrate with people. And so why would I deny others the ability to celebrate with me? Just another part of my self-care, and this ties so directly to the episode, is is grieving. Uh, my grandmother passed, you know, a week before my birthday in the summer of 2020 because of COVID. And then that same year in November, my cousin Lyle Weaver passed. Another cousin passed this past November. I miss them all. I miss them so much. The, the biggest just act of self-care has been allowing myself to feel sad. I miss my grandmother so much. She was someone who... I would call any time of day or night and we would just kiki and, and talk and have such a wonderful time. I just miss her being that somebody to share space with. And what I've come to understand about grief is that, you know, it's not something to suppress. It's something to embrace. And it's an act of loving. It's a method of loving. It's a method of me still sharing space with someone who may not be physically here, but whose spirits I feel every day. And my cousins, Boomp and Langston and um, Lucius, celebrate Lao all the time with like t-shirts and New Year's celebrations. And they post pictures of him and memories of him on social media. For me, self-care has become the things that I celebrate and just really like tying myself to to the ritual of celebrating life, doing my best to reject the accountability to capitalism, that I have to buy a thing to participate in self-care because that's also not available to me all the time as a graduate student. And um, like having a baby costs money. And so that is really where Mar and I are putting time and energy and money into. And so self-care has really become about learning how to be with myself and loving on myself in ways that capitalism says, you know, that ain't it, you know, secure the bag, go and grind. You got to finish reading this book or this article. You have to say yes to this project because it's going to help you make more money. And it's actually about, I got to care for my myself. I got to care for my spirit. You know, I think that that really brings us to, you know, where we, Aaron and I, you and I have begun to talk about this episode, which is how might the pandemic be a portal to something else, to self-care? In particular, we've had the privilege of talking with two educators and a social worker. They've really guided us through this notion of self-care in all the ways that it comes up for them. Yeah, so in today's episode, we're going to be asking ourselves and and, you know, all of us, how do we as educators care for ourselves and our communities? We begin with a conversation with Adia Lindo, who is a social worker who engages in grief counseling um, and grief therapy with young people in schools, so K through 12. She really shared her story of, of her grief journey and the importance of creating space and rituals for grieving. And then our 
Our final person who we spoke with is Krista Calkins, who is a, a high school educator in upstate New York. She really, she and Wilder, her, her new son, talked with us about caregiving and how caregiving is valuable and important work that capitalism makes us sometimes turn away from. For our, re our resource room, we'll be talking with Cesarina Centena-Pierre, who is a, an elementary educator in Washington, D.C., about a resource that she uses to ground her liberatory abolitionist practice in her classroom. And then we'll also hear from Sabrina, a fifth grader who is a student in Singapore, who is going to share her writing about Islam. But first, we'll hear from Adia. My name is Adia Lindo. My pronouns are she and her, and I am a social worker that specializes in grief work in Massachusetts. I've been doing this for about seven years. I've had different roles in terms of my grief work experience. I provide individual counseling to students that are in kindergarten, elementary through high school. I have some college students as well um, that I work with, and I support them in developing coping skills to manage their emotions and honor the people person they love that died and how to just kind of manage that and school and life in general and the pandemic all in one great big web of emotions. I feel like I always talk about culture. I let people know like in the beginning but I am because there's a lot of misconceptions by looking at me that you would think I'm of another race. Um, but in being Jamaican and Haitian and understanding the stigma that goes around mental health and communication around mental health and what it looks like, but then also like kind of having that space to talk about the things that are hard. Grief in general looks different for everybody and how the person that you love died also looks different. It's not always the same. The definition of loss isn't the same either. Loss, it's particularly in this case related to um, grief, but grief can also be separation, divorce, incarceration. It can be like so many ways of looking at how people can be separated in their families. Understanding that the difference between the self-care and self-harm and how they're trying to cope with that and making sure that people stay safe in their, how they're coping and expressing that their emotions um, and taking when someone says that they um, feel like they might harm themselves like taking that seriously and understanding like hey this may be a space where they're at and that that communication is really important to understand and have a um and be there for that person and sometimes people don't have the words on what to say I think that's something that happens a lot for people they want to they don't want to say the wrong thing and there's beauty in silence and power in listening to someone um for example with my friend Kathy when my mom died she just sat with me after the funeral she didn't say anything every once in a while she'd go you good and I go yep or I'd cry but that power and that silence that's when I learned the beauty and the power of silence um and I take that with me when I work with the kids I work with, because not everybody's story is the same. And it's not a fixing. We're not fixing. Um, 
we're just learning and listening. And I feel like that is the most, that goes a long way, but it's hard to sit in silence um, if you're not practicing it on the daily, (laughs) but there's power in hearing people's story. It's an isolating experience that goes, that the whole world experienced in the past year, in addition to other traumas that have happened, especially like in certain cultures, it's just like this book of layers that continues to happen. Um, But I think in, again, in communication and having those talks and acknowledging it, it makes it, it normalizes it and it makes the experience a little bit more tangible depending on who you are and how you manage things, you know? And kids are super resilient. Parents are super scared to talk to them and be honest about how they're feeling, but parents are also the best modelers of how to show that they're missing someone always being open to having the conversation and just really just taking a step back to also remember that children are children first and they're grieving second. I think that goes for all adults too. Like humans are humans first and they're grieving second. So as a child, I remember I found out when I was in seventh grade and my brothers and I are all six years apart. And I found out my mom was first diagnosed in seventh grade. So I remember telling a few of my friends, hey, this is going on. And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. But my immediate thought was death. I was like, oh, she's going tomorrow. And my mom was like, no, I'm not going tomorrow. We had a bunch of family meetings often to talk about where she was at in her diagnosis, even as I got older. She initially did not want us to have that conversation because she didn't want us to worry or be concerned with other things. She just wanted us to be kids and focus on school and getting good grades. All right. Um, But my dad being the fantastic doctor that he is was like, nope, we're going to have this conversation because that gives them the kids a chance to talk about how they feel. And if they're scared, if they're nervous, if they're worried, and you can ask all the questions and they won't feel like there's not something they didn't get to ask you. So that when you're gone, you won't regret not having that conversation. And even if you don't get to have the conversation, at least they know what's going on. They can see that you're scared. They can see that you're happy. They could see that you're going through it, but we're all going through it as a family together. You know, we had multiple family meetings all the time. Like when, because my mom went into remission for four years and that's when I was in high school. And then I found out again, my junior year that it came back. I remember uh, I called, I had a track meet and I called home because I was like, oh, I'm going to be late. Um, and my dad was like, oh, you, you can't go to the track meet. I said, why? He said, we're going to have a family, we're going to have a family meeting. And I was like, oh, you know what? You need to just tell me right now before I get home. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, your mother wants you to get home. So we all have, and I was like, just tell me, just tell me. And he's like, it's back. And I was like, okay. So I just, I'm prepared now of what I'm walking into. Thank you for telling me. I think that um, with my dad, me being the talker, as I said before, his grief process, I didn't know this until I was older, was that he went to go see a therapist, but I just saw him working all the time as it was happening, even after she passed. My mom was a rock star in that she moved us to a new house as opposed to the house that we grew up in because there was way too many memories there. And my mom was such a rock star. She like planned her whole funeral. Like she was like, I am doing this. Like if I'm going to leave, I'm going out on my terms. I don't want a big casket. I want a pine box with a silk sheet. 
everybody's gonna follow my rules her, that that you know and her being the lawyer you really couldn't argue with her she like laid it out for everybody she planned everything so that the burden or the worry for my dad would be lifted um even in moving us to our new home he was like no 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 I don't know like what am I gonna do and she goes you're gonna fix this house and my dad has an engineering degree as well and she's like you're gonna fix this house you're gonna be so occupied you won't even begin to worry about me you're gonna fix this house my dad fixed the house there's an alcove that's in the house that's lit white because her hair grew back white that's like in the house there's a portrait of my mom in the living room on the in the center of the living room even with my fiance he proposed to me in that house underneath that picture because he knew he wanted my mom to be a part of the experience so learning later that my dad went to go see a therapist because at the time when I was seeing a therapist I thought I was the only one legit he was working I'm like he's working my older brother was away at college my younger brother was going through high school like no one was talking about it like we I wanted to talk to them about it but I was when I talked to them about it they would cry I was like oh I'm not I mean I'm already a crier so (laughs) I was I was like oh maybe this is not I can't share my memories maybe I can't do that but then I was like so I needed a place to go I needed an outlet to share everything because I couldn't hold it all in hence where I met the social worker on my brother's recommendation and then I wanted her job and now this is my life um but (laughs) uh moment of learning and every time I went to my therapist I came back and told my dad about it I told him about what we talked about in session I told him like all the stuff I was learning all the memories and it wasn't a competition like everyone's loss is their greatest loss and I learned that in therapy like my experience is not everyone else's experience and especially in my family it's not it's not the same it's all based on the relationship of the person you're with um you're grieving right like dad that was his wife for 30 years, right? But that was my mom for eight, for 19. So when we talk about memories back then, he would remember, I would remember things that he wouldn't remember. So he'd be like, she never said that, or that didn't happen. And I was like, yes, it did. And it would lead to arguments because it was my journey not, and he wasn't there or he was there. And he had his own version of how the story turned out. After a while, I know that it was before I went to grad school and he said, uh, you know, that therapy stuff, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I was doing it too. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he goes, how did you think I was raising you, you three kids and going to work and practicing this whole time? And I was like, you've been in therapy this whole time? And he goes, yeah. I go, why didn't you tell me? I'm here telling my stories. I'm here talking and you're not, what? And he's like, well, I wasn't about to tell you, you know, all this stuff, but you know, and I was like, oh, so my relationship with my father is completely changed now that I'm older, you know, and my siblings in that the memories we share are even more heartfelt and wonderful. And I see it even in my nieces and nephews and how they remember my mom and the things that they talk about and it's just really a beautiful thing so my dad just I mean it was nice to know that I wasn't alone but it would have been really helpful if I knew it way earlier (laughs) it would have been very helpful because then I would have been like oh I'm not the only one in therapy but then that's also culture right that's also stigma and mental health and what people grow up talking about and what people don't grow up talking about and respecting that experience from each person I think that it's really important in being able to support the kids that either you know what happened, like that they've lost a parent and 
still treating them like regular students, like not giving them like a pass to not do their work, but then also being empathetic to their situation and being like, oh, I understand why you can't do your work today. I understand why you may need to leave and take space to, to take a moment. And having conversations in school, like meanings, trainings. I know people that go around to schools and talk about the importance of having the conversation of grief and are looking at grief in the larger context and in related to COVID and being like, hey, this is something we need to talk about because our kids are going through it and they may not know know what it looks like, but they're feeling it. And if they see us as adults modeling what that looks like and what they're going through and sharing that, they feel less alone. It's the stories and hearing about the people that died and no matter what age they are, they have a story to tell, right? Like there's three-year-olds will tell you about a memory and you're just like, oh, wow. Or, you know, I've had um, students that I work with or when I was doing um, in-home therapy, you know, I'd use use of self and the person would have lost a parent. And I'd say, yeah, I lost, I lost, uh, my mom died. And I've had children go, your mom died? How did you get through it? And I was like, oh, I cried a lot. I did all these things, but how about you? How are you getting through it? What are you doing? Asking those questions, being open to the answers, being open to not knowing the answers and having those questions for them and not being scared of the, the answers and like owning that you don't know what you're talking, you don't know things is also important. But then they go, oh, I miss my mom too, or I miss my dad too, or I miss my brother too. And that's coming from someone who's not the surviving parent and the worries that the kids have about the surviving parent and the support for the surviving parent who are also grieving their partner, but then also raising their children at the same time. And knowing that that support does exist and is available to people is essential. And I think if we don't have the conversations about grief, then those people who are in that population often get forgotten and the isolating experience continues to be more isolating. And there's like support that doesn't, essential support that doesn't seem to happen, happen. And when people know it's like a word of mouth thing, which is odd because if we don't talk about it, no one knows. But I feel like it's just, yeah, I feel like it's really important to be able to support each other. And this year taught us, if you didn't learn about yourself in the past year and you went into 2019, 2020 and didn't come out different and you're still the same, then there's a lot of reflection that needs to happen. And that's what makes it different in that sense of grief. It's that the whole world experienced it at the same time. And it changed you all at the same time no matter where you were it impacted you and everyone was isolated like things you used to be able to do you aren't able to do now similarly to grief and you're sitting in it and you're like what do I do now what am I supposed to do now and what I loved about what you guys had done in the past was you are reconnecting with people you're talking to people you're picking up that phone you're having that conversation you're reflecting on things that used to make you feel good like all the retro things that are coming back thank god for scrunchies you know like all the things that you used to enjoy and that you're reflecting on you're all learning as a collective and going through it as a collective so we all need if we don't talk about it and we don't learn from it we won't heal as a collective I know that the power of therapy is important. And if I didn't go to therapy and I didn't have that outlet in that space, I definitely wouldn't be talking to you ladies right now. 
I wouldn't be living in Massachusetts right now. I wouldn't have the life that I have and the life that I love right now. I wouldn't be having this experience if I didn't have that safe space to go to. I'm just like so honored to provide that safe space for people to have that conversation because I know it's hard, I know it sucks, but then the courage it takes to have that conversation is everything, everything. Thank you so much to Adia for sharing this story of, you know, how you and your family have celebrated and grieved the life of your mother and for sharing how you have made your life's work creating spaces for children to grieve and process their grief. One of the things that just was an aha moment for me was the importance of silence in ourselves, but also conveying that silence when we're sitting with someone who is grieving. Adia offers a way of us giving permission to ourselves to not saying anything. Also offering the, the more silent rituals around grieving. I was, I was thinking exactly that. And I, I also was thinking about the importance of collectivity and being in communion with others in that grief. And that, you know, when Adia talks about this, you know, realization that her, that her father also was going through therapy and being able to express that to each other and how transformative that was for their relationship. You know, so much in our schools right now, we are in this space of steamrolling ahead, going ahead and not acknowledging just the mass, the massive grieving that we are all, that we're all experiencing, that we're all going through. What I'm learning from Adia is how important it is to, to make space for that and to acknowledge it. I think one of the, the things that when I thought about grief initially, I was thinking about grief connected to death of human life. And while I still believe that, Adia also talked about other kinds of passages. The passage of, you know, where so many of us as educators are in isolation. We live by ourselves or we might be living with uh, families again. And so maybe there's the loss of personal space or the the want for connection or the missing of our students um, and, and colleagues who we love, and that it's okay to grieve those things too. This can be a portal to something else. And so I, I wonder how grieving might take us to other acts of liberation, of letting go of certain structures and things that just don't serve us. I think this also connects to the story that Krista shares with us. And Krista Hawkins is a high school teacher in New York who, when we spoke with her, was taking child rearing leave from her school. And Krista talks with how important care work is. What I'm hearing from Adia is how important it is for we as educators to create spaces for grieving in our classrooms and to create spaces to really refuse to continue on this hamster wheel, but to slow down and make spaces for care. And Krista, you know, she is really talking about and something she's learning from her experience of for caring for her new son Wilder is how we as a country are not prioritizing and not valuing the the real labor that is caregiving. So here's Krista. Hi, I'm Krista Calkins. I have been teaching ELA in the Southern tier of New York now for 11 years. And I'm currently on what my district calls child rearing leave. 
which really is more of an extension of maternity leave. So I am on leave for this academic year, and the plan is to return next September to the classroom. So I am in a bit of, I guess, a liminal space as an educator, but also I'm finding it to be a very interesting space. At the moment, it looks quite a bit different than it did when my son was born in March. Every state, I believe, is different. New York, we are a union state. We have a pretty powerful statewide teachers union, um, but our contracts are negotiated at the local level. So in my district, I could take um, six weeks paid maternity leave as long as I had banked that paid time off. Where I'm at, my paid leave counts toward my seniority and counts toward my retirement. But starting on the first day of my unpaid leave, that no longer counts. The plan, my partner is also a teacher. He teaches social studies in the same district, in the same building across the hall from me. So our original plan was that I was going to return to work this September. We were going to put our son in daycare. And September this year was going to look very normal, which was probably the thought of a lot of us in the spring. So first, our daycare search did not go how we anticipated. We applied for daycare in December. We thought we were on top of things. We were not. (laughs) At the end of May, I started making phone calls to the mothers in my life of a variety of different generations, but mothers who were also educators and asking them how they made the decision either to return to work, to extend a leave, or to stay at home either temporarily or permanently. In my kind of fact-finding mission, I got to hear a lot of very interesting stories, a lot of very important stories that I don't think are often shared, but that helped me start to explore this idea that I would extend my leave for a child rearing leave. So those kinds of stories and that kind of vulnerability that they shared with me, I really appreciated the perspective that staying at home and there's just not the language that I have that satisfies me when I'm, I talk about what I do all day. The idea that this is hard and it's okay that it's hard and you can feel lots of different ways about it and those feelings are valid and legitimate. I was really excited because I would get to see milestones that I was afraid that I was going to miss if I returned to work. I did finally over the summer hear from all three daycare. Because of COVID, they have, they've just been very, very full. Definitely being a parent has made me think about these things. I had this idea that the system was going to be difficult to navigate, but that Jeremy and I would figure it out and we would be happy or at least content with our decisions. And it very quickly became apparent that there really is no system. You patch together what you can to make it work. We are very privileged that the patches we can put together are really high quality daycares or taking a leave of absence. But 
I'd say the majority of people in the United States don't have access to those things. They don't have access to the kind of income you'd have to have to take an unpaid leave for a year or to be able to access high quality childcare. I treated the early days kind of as a research project. And a lot of what I looked at were the outcomes and high quality childcare outside the home shows just as positive outcomes as high quality care at home with a parent. So we can give parents good options and have positive outcomes for children. It just seems like as a whole, as a society, we're just choosing not to do that. And I think we really have to start having those conversations, not just at a national level, but also having those conversations locally. For us, this is a contract year. We are negotiating a new contract. And for me, that means advocating for more flexible leave. I think the most striking area of my passionate frustration is that this is work. This is labor. Care matters. Care is work. And we in a capitalist society treat it as something that is necessary, but that we easily exploit often without even batting an eyelash. This idea, I think from an intellectual perspective, I know that I am not being lazy by choosing to stay home and raise my baby, but from a social perspective, from living in the U.S. my whole life, I do in my gut have a concern about the perception of me as a a stay-at-home mom, whether that is temporary or whether that becomes permanent because so much of my identity is wrapped up in what I do for work. And child rearing is very similar to teaching, regardless of the fact that I've taught high school. And for most of my career, I have taught students ages 16 to about 19. A lot of the development, a lot of the needs are very, very similar. I'm I'm increasingly frustrated with this idea that we want as a nation, we say that we want to support families. We say all sorts of things about our family values, but we don't actually invest in them. And I think that goes from kind of zero investment in childcare and early childhood education to what I would really say is minimal investment in public education. And if you are the 99% of Americans, you're really struggling to make this, this patchwork for the first five or six years of your child's life work in a way that is sustainable, first of all, but then also that it is actually going to be beneficial to them, that they're going to get a strong foundation to be able to, to start school successfully. And not just from an academic perspective, but also from a social perspective, from an emotional perspective. I know that we have tremendously creative people who can figure this out. I know that the majority of Americans want these changes. They want an investment in ourselves and each other. 
I just don't know what it's going to take for us to finally see that we have to do this now. This cannot wait. There are two main lessons. The first is accepting care. I found that to be really important. As someone who's, who's very independent, I struggled with that. The second is being an advocate for yourself. And being an introvert, I also struggled with that. Um, and I, I still do struggle with that a little bit. So accepting care. I was not prepared for the outpouring of love and attention and food <laughs> that we received as a family from our students and from our students' families. I didn't realize the impact of our broader community, especially our school community. So a couple of examples of that. I had two students who came to visit with a huge hamper of homemade cookies, a handmade blanket. These are 15 and 16-year-old kids. My favorite chocolate pudding cups, tea. They came during COVID with their masks on and they sat with us. They told us how cute the baby was. We talked about their summer plans and their hopes for their, their senior year. And that was just like one group of, of several kids. And as, as teachers and educators, I think we're always very aware, if not wary, of having clear boundaries between ourselves and our students and between our families and our students. For us, we live in the community that we work in. My husband teaches in the district that he graduated from. We actually live in the house that my husband grew up in and Wilder is growing up in my husband's old bedroom. <laughs> so we're, we're very connected. And we also had parents who would stop by either with their students or they would just stop by to meet the baby, to bring us food. We had um, one mom who's just wonderful. Um, she brought us dinner a couple of times and she would come over just to walk our dog in those early weeks. So that was a really wonderful experience that I didn't anticipate having in a million years. And that I think maybe pre-COVID wouldn't necessarily have happened. But I think because of the time that we spent teaching from home and the the kind of shift in boundaries during quarantine that had to happen to keep students connected to school and to keep them learning as much as possible. I think that shift really allowed for them to feel that they were also a part of our family and that they took care of us. I think capitalism tells us that our value is in our labor. What can we do for the system to make money and to make money for someone else? I think care disrupts that system because it forces the structures of capitalism. It forces the people at the top of a capitalist system to recognize that we are human beings, that we deserve dignity. And a big part of dignity is rest. It's having the capacity to take care of ourselves at, at different levels, at 
emotional levels, at physical levels, at academic levels. But we can't do that in a system that's constantly telling us that we need to work more, work harder, work longer, and tries to use our families as a kind of, of carrot to dangle in front of us. For example, if I had just stuck to my part-time job in addition to my full-time job, I wouldn't worry so much about the financial aspects of taking this year off rather than recognizing that I am a person who has multiple roles, not just that of worker or labor, and that my full-time job should be enough to provide for my family. I think insisting on care and the dignity of care and not just self-care, but also community care is a really powerful place to start dismantling these systems. Our education system, we know, is really doing more for standardized testing companies than it is for students. And I think we all have an uh, important role role in dismantling that system, but I think especially as a white cisgender teacher, I have a particularly important role in dismantling a system that I have benefited from. And now I see how empty those benefits really were. I think, especially for education, but I, for a lot of professions, our sense of that we are irreplaceable, that if we are hardworking and not not just hardworking, but the go-getters, the above and beyond, the I get here early, I stay late, I've never said no to a committee or a club. When my school needs something, I'm going to step up and do it. And this illusion that when we do those things, that there's some sort of like extra loyalty points or something that we're getting that we'll be able to cash in later. And sometimes we do see those things happening, but oftentimes it's not because those teachers are particularly hardworking. It's for other reasons that really have nothing to do with education. But I think recognizing that we're all replaceable in this system, that there's somebody that they will get for the next class or the next day who will step in to those shoes that we thought we'd made so big and that our our a lot of our bargaining power we've really given up by the time that that happens for a long time I, as an early career teacher, really put myself in that situation. I said yes to everything. I got there early. I stayed late. It took them three weeks to find a replacement, which gave me a little bit of satisfaction, but I didn't exist once I said that I was leaving. I think we have to recognize early on that that is the way the system is designed. It's going to get the most out of us, and it's going to get the most out of the most vulnerable of us that that we really not only need to protect ourselves as educators, that means protecting our time outside of the classroom, but we also have to get a lot better about being there for each other. So for us, I think there's a lot of power in 
our group and in our union to advocate for what's best for us as individuals. The key, I think, for me is showing that what is best for parents is also beneficial for the teachers in my unit who are not. For right-to-work states, I think it's a lot trickier because the system doesn't benefit kind of unified thinking. Um, And that's one area that I've been thinking a lot about, especially when I hear from teachers who had six weeks maternity leave and had to go right back into the classroom before they were ready because they would have lost their job. I've always been interested in this whole question of parenting and motherhood and how that looks in different contexts. But as a parent and an educator, I think there are a lot of interconnected layers to this experience and to my my understanding of my role in it. I also feel this incredible sense of, of urgency that we need to make very dramatic systemic changes now and for a variety of reasons are still very much in the pandemic. I hear and see a lot of concern, especially about women leaving the workforce, but we're not really doing anything to alleviate their need to leave the workforce. I also think about the politics of care as a whole, not just of of education or parenting, but of all professions and also all roles, often unpaid roles that we take on to care for each other. We need to value those roles and capitalism really doesn't let us do that. In fact, it, it benefits from when we don't do it. your listeners, especially if they're in a similar situation, know that they are not alone, that their feelings and their experiences are valid, and that together we can make these situations better for ourselves and for our families and for our our kids and our students. Gratitude, Krista and Wilder, for joining us. This, it makes me, when we recorded this episode or, or that this interview, it was in the fall. So I think even early, early to mid fall of last year. And my goodness, how much things have stayed the same. We're in a moment where teachers and students. We have students in Oakland, students in Chicago, teachers, you know, organizing and walking out because of a lack of care. Krista's words hit home in that care is truly an antidote to capitalism. If we truly say we care about children, if we say we love children, so many school districts talk about loving children, but what are our our practices that say we love children look like? What are our care practices toward educators and young people look like? And what's so profound about what Krista shared is a realization that caring for this this baby who relies on her to to quite literally survive has meant that she's had to re-examine and unlearn 
the things that she was oriented toward in order to survive as a teacher and how now being a mother, being a caregiver has totally recalibrated and demanded that she refuse. And how do you care for other folks' children? How do you care for your own children for those of you who have them? How do you care for, you know, parents, family members, community members? Because caregiving looks lots of different ways to lots of us. If you're not able, like structurally, the structures in place do not allow you to care for yourself. And how do we refuse to continue participation? Just refuse participation in these narratives of self-sacrificing because, Mm -hmm. you know, she spoke so when she said like these shoes that we thought could not be filled, you know, how, how replaceable we are. It's like, how do I refuse to work when I'm sick again in the future? Because like our playing into these narratives just allows for institutions to continue to to exploit us and exploit the most vulnerable of us. And it makes me also think about colleagues who are constantly out, colleagues who are faltering, and sometimes those workloads shift to us, the people who aren't calling out, the people who are coming to work every day, the people who are doing the absolute most. Sometimes those colleagues who are calling out, who are sick, who are caring for kids, they get demonized. They get talked about because they're not doing what we believe that they're supposed to be doing. Right. And yet they're actually participating in care work. Like, what can we learn from them? Yes. And how can we organize ourselves in community and collectivity to participate in collective refusal? You should be out, you know, not just when you feel bad, not just when you need a mental health day, but because maybe you got some business to take care of. Maybe you have a friend in town and you want to go have fun with this friend. I remember my dad, one Davis A. Cooper Jr., who is a a former educator, but he came to visit me at, at school one day. I was teaching 10th grade English and he said to me on the phone, he arrived back in Georgia and he said, when I'm going to tell you something and you may not like it, And I said, oh, Lord, what's my daddy going to say? And he said, you know, Monet, you work really hard. I just want to tell you, you know, they can get it. If you were to die today, they can get another you. They are going to miss you. Your students are going to miss you, but they will find another person to replace you in a minute. They'll get a sub and eventually they'll hire somebody. We can't get another you for us, your family. It's not that I did an about face, a complete 180 in that moment, but it set me on a journey to really understanding self-care what is what could it look like for me as somebody who's been disciplined by perfect attendance by getting the honor roll having grades that are going to give me a scholarship to go to college that's going to give me a, a career where I'll be stable and able to support my family but at the end of the day like who does it serve who our schools are carceral places and we've talked about it being carceral places for students but it's a carceral place for us too as educators We're so excited for this episode's resource room because we get to introduce you to Cesarina Santana Pierre, an elementary school teacher in Washington, D.C. She's a wonderful storyteller and an incredible, incredible teacher. In this two-part resource room, you'll hear Cesarina talk about the gift of time and unlearning. Um, it, to me, it's unbelievable to believe that I'm in my 26th year of teaching, and this is when I finally figured it out, because it's taken this long to like undo all the oppression, all the um, the things I thought were the right teaching practices that would help my students, 
And thank goodness for organizations like Teach for Change and, and, and the work we've been doing at our school, anti-racist, anti-bias school. I've read Cornelius Minor. I've read um, Dr. Um, Goldie Muhammad. Like I've been, because of the pandemic also, I have been really had the time to read and learn about how my teaching practices are not serving my students. Um, Dr. Bettina Love is another one. She was like one instrumental person that opened my eyes to what I was really doing. And it's like you're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid and you don't even know it. It's like they, they're telling you to do these things. And what you're doing is making students less engaged, hate learning. And, and that's exactly what it's intended to do, which is another thing I heard. It's for them to drop out. So by the time they get to elementary school, by the time I teach fifth grade, by the time they get to me, they don't even want nothing to do with school. It's like all that love of learning and that excitement that you get in the early school years has disappeared. And it's so, so sad. So I feel like there's not enough money in the world. There's not enough resources. I don't think those are the answers. And for me personally, it's the way I'm managing my time and the way I'm making space for my students to learn. Before, like our, my coach would advise me to be, you know, we're doing a teacher's college, um, TC units of reading, writing, where I have issues with, because personally, I go to those Saturday reunions in New York City, and when you walk into this space and you see it's mainly white women, and there's nobody questions this, like there has to be something here that has an issue. And that was my my first awakening. It's like, why am I glorifying this curriculum? Why am I thinking that this is what my students need to be enough to, to compete? to be exemplary, to be like, like, why is it we're always trying to measure up to, to white schools that are affluent, that have all this money and resources, you know, like, it's not the, that they have more intelligence than us. It's just set up inequitably to make us believe that they're better. And so then this just made me feel like I can't teach the same way they do because we don't have the same needs. And my students bring a lot of gifts into my classroom that I don't even take the time to like appreciate. To me, it's like, all right, so I have these resources, but I'm going to use them to my advantage. Like I'm going to tweak and cater and do modifications that fit the needs of my students. I'm going to tap into their, I forget, um, Ms. Hammond talked about culturally responsive um, teaching, about the brain and about tapping into that collectivity and about the oral story and their roots. And, 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 and being aware that these are advantages that no one's been tapping into, but but making it more individualistic and making it like you, it's you, you alone that you're failing or it's always blaming it on one group of people instead of tapping into the power of the collective. So that's what I'm, I'm telling my students. It's like, we are in this together. Like if one of us fail, we all fail. I could have my books in front of me. Uh, Matthew McCray, he he wrote a book about um, with fire but not light about having courageous conversations about race in school. And in his book, he uses in Baltimore where he teaches, he has these four themes that he teaches high school. They start in the ninth grade with identity, like who am I? And then 10th, they go into community, like who are we? And then 11th is advocacy, like what are we fighting for? What? And then the last one is 12th grade self-expression. Myself and a colleague of mine both read this book and we managed to convince our literacy people to adopt these themes. Like we're starting with identity and because like what Dr. Muhammad said, like the, the, the teaching has to be relevant to them. It has to matter. And then you have to add that layer of criticality to it. Like make them question and wonder like, why are these things the way they are? Why are things set up the way they are? So we started with identity 
And the final product, which is another thing I feel like I like to teach with projects and stuff, they wrote their own books because we use that. There's a, a graph that Teaching for Change shared with me about the number of characters in children's book and how it's 50% white. And then it's like 17% black. And then it's like less Latino. And there's like 1% Native American. And that's how I launched it. Talking back with time, like I asked my, I want time. I want a week to launch and set goals with my students before I even start teaching. And then at the end, I need another week for us to reflect on how we did, how our goals are. We do hopes and dreams. So I'm like, this hopes and dreams is not something I put it on a wall and forgetting about it for the rest of the year. It's not something we do at the beginning of the school year just to you know make it look cute this is a goal that you're setting for yourself for the school year and you're going to go back to it reflect on it make it better see if you accomplished it so we need time to do that like we need time to address that goals were academic and social emotional because I told my students before I was taught to just focus on your academic needs but now we're learning that you have social emotional needs too and I tell them you can't just focus on the brain we have to focus on your heart too and so they did and it's amazing money when you give them a menu of things to choose from they know what they need like they know where their strengths are and they know what they need to get better and we don't bother to ask them and we don't bother to follow through with them this i say all this because this was our identity theme and when i showed them that graph that was the criticality that was they were like they were like it's not fair like that's not right and then i had one student who said you know what that's true i've never read a book about a girl from el salvador and then and I had another student in the same class who was African-American and he was like, you all deal with this too? Like it never dawned on him that his Latino classmates are having the same struggle that he has um, as a black student. It was, I mean, it gave me goosebumps just to start just with this one little, like this launch, we haven't even gotten into the meat of stuff and the kids are ready to see. So these two kids that probably go at it with each other now have a point of, of connection now more empathy, less bullying happens. Now we're working more together because we're understanding each other more. Now we'll hear from Sabrina, a writer and reader and good friend to all. Last year in my fourth grade class, Sabrina and her friends were inspired by their historical fiction book club books. They collaborated to create a podcast in which they interviewed each other to celebrate and learn about their cultural identities, especially around their faith practices. In this piece, Sabrina said that she wants to teach others about her knowings of Islam. Here's Sabrina. I'm Sabrina, I'm 10 years old, and I'm in the fifth grade. I wrote an essay about Islam because I feel like people should know more about it. One out of the many religions in the world is Islam. I happen to know a lot about it because I'm Muslim, but it might not be the same for you. I say this because Islam is my religion, but it might not be yours. In this text, I will teach you all about our prayers, what we can and can't eat, and our clothing restrictions. First, our prayers. In Islam, we believe in God, which means we pray. We have five different prayers. Number one is Fajr. Fajr is in the early morning and just before the sun rises. Once it rises, Fajr ends. Number two is Zohar. Zohar is in the mid-afternoon. Three is Asr. Asr is around the late afternoon. Four is Maghrib, and Maghrib is exactly five minutes after the sun starts setting. Lastly, five is Isha. Isha is when it gets dark outside. When Isha comes, Maghrib ends, but you can always do makeup prayers. Each prayer has a different amount of rakah. A rakah is like a set of motions that Muslims perform in a prayer. Fajr has two rakahs. 
Zohar has four, Aser has four, my group has three, and Isha has four. During prayer, girls wear hijabs, but both boys and girls must cover their arms and legs. Next, I'll talk about our clothing restrictions. Speaking of covering up, prayer isn't the only time we have to cover up. Girls are always mandatory to cover their legs, and anything above the knees isn't that good. Boys, however, are allowed to wear shorts. Both boys and girls can wear t-shirts, but it's not recommended for girls. Definitely no straps or strapless. For girls, a hijab isn't mandatory, but it is highly encouraged. Boys don't have anything like hijabs, just girls. Something both boys and girls have is things we can and can't eat. In the previous chapter, I taught about clothing restrictions that Muslims face with Islam, and it's almost the same with food. All Muslims, no matter boy or girl, have things we can and can't eat. We can't eat pork, so ham and gelatin are out of the question. Sometimes, if you get a pack of gummies and it has gelatin, you check the back. If it's made in places such as Turkey and other Muslim countries, it's okay. But if not, it's not halal. Because these things aren't halal, Muslims can't eat them. Halal is something that is okay for Muslims to eat or do. That's all about what we can and can't eat. In conclusion to this text, I hope you've learned more about our prayers, clothing, and food. Do you think you've learned a lot more rather than when we began? Maybe now you know the basic life of a good Muslim. I don't know any other word for it other than love for Adia Lindo, Krista Calkins, Cesarina, Santana Pierre, and our youngest friend today, Sabrina for joining us, sharing their stories, sharing their life work, their care work with us on our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've talked so much today about these care practices and I want to just send extra gratitude to the people who have been in community with me, with us to help me care for myself, to Nina for sending audio books to Kathy for delivering noodle soup and to my dad and my sister for answering all my medical questions. My friends here for making my French emails to doctors more legible to my co-teachers, Linda and Natasha, Jolie, for insisting I prioritize my care and myself. Uh, For Elliot, for, for insisting on tracking my vitals every hour and documenting them very meticulously. Um, And to my dog, Hugo, for being a weighted blanket. What about Mm. you, Monet? I love these loving care signals that just like, it's keeping you alive and helping you survive. I just, yes. I'm, I'm sending love to my body for carrying me this far. Shout out to this body, sending gratitude to my sister for the most excellent memes and videos. Sarah Rose, you, your curation is exquisite. My homegirls, Keisha and Shay for consistent conversations that remind me to care for this body I'm in. Group chats with my University of Georgia fam, like my girls and, and my other friend, two friends, Ev and, and Lauren, who are just, who just remind me of like my Black girl self and that we can talk about anything in these group chats and and it just reminds me to live life every day my dad sends me texts of just the most ordinary things and asks these like very you know rich 
simple questions. And I'm just thankful for my dad for being sure that I'm connected to home. Anna for an adventure in making a felt red velvet cake. It was a lot of fun. We still are looking for a recipe. And, you know, Mara for being someone who keeps food in our bellies and lets me learn about love every day. I feel like we have so much to be grateful for, so much to express gratitude for. And gratitude, rituals of gratitude are also care work too. Let's turn to you all now to close this year. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we feel like (laughs) 2022 already feels like it's done. It's in the books. Lord of mercy. Turning to you all in this new year of learning, what are you refusing and unlearning? What commitments are you making to your own self-care? So send us your responses, your answers to this, your practices of care, your commitments to refusal to us. And we would love to share a voice note, a recording, your thoughts, or even your just your written thoughts on our next episode. So send them to us at our email, dancingondesks at gmail.com our Instagram at Dancing on Desks, or head over to our website at dancingondesks.org. I love you, Erin. I love you too. And we love you all. And we hope you all are able to take care of yourselves and care for yourselves. Peace. Peace. I'm Sabrina and I'm from a lot of places. My origins are Pakistan and Bangladesh, but my current house is in Texas and I'm about to live in Singapore. I'm in the fifth grade. Dancing on Desks is a podcast created by storytellers Monet Cooper and Aaron Thiesing. Sarah Rose Cooper is our community engagement genius, and today's production could never have happened without our hive mind. So much gratitude to them. Mara Johnson and Elliot Wilkes arranged our theme music. Have a story to share or a response to this episode's exit ticket? Hit us up and respond at dancingondesks.org. Or find us on Instagram at Dancing on Desks. We'll talk with you soon. Like a lot of these things, that little tablecloths that I had to buy in the dollar store, like little banners and deck. I even went and bought flags, the, all the flags of, of Central America. I bought the main flag, like the, the main flag. And I bought that and I wrote a grant and I, got, I just got paid for it, 400 bucks right back into my account. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was upset. The only flag I cannot find in DC, which really upset me, was the Belize flag. And I'm wondering, I had to go make it. I had to go make it with a, I made that flag. But I'm like, why is it the, the Central American country with the most black people that doesn't really speak as much Spanish does not have representation in the, in these stories. But anyway, that's a whole nother issue.